some 15 years ago, I sat in the living room of a fellow MOPS leader and I whispered a prayer to God. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to know Jesus the way that these women know Jesus. For months, I had sat in this circle of women and listened as they gave devotions and shared scripture, often fumbling through my Bible, learning that the table of contents was quickly becoming my friend. Because over time, I was learning that to know Jesus meant to know his word. And in those early years of MOPS, I was not only growing friendships, some of which I still have 15 years later, but more importantly, these women were showing me how to grow in my relationship and my friendship with Christ. And over the years, God would continue to answer that prayer by graciously placing people in my life that had a fierce desire to know and to teach his word, to live a life surrendered to him and his will for their lives. I would watch as these followers would cling to God's word when they had those joyous mountaintop experiences and especially when they were going through the sufferings and hardships that life can bring. They have helped me understand that tucked within the pages of God's living word is a richness of love that can be found no other place. One of the commentaries that I like to use is called Christ-Centered Exposition. And in it, it tells us of the importance of reading the Bible from front to back and back to front. We read the Bible front to back from Genesis all the way to Revelation because it allows us to discover a God who created everything and has redeemed everything in his son. It shows us that God is the one in whom everything depends and the only one truly worthy of our worship. And we see how the stories of Israel were redeemed and fulfilled in Jesus. And then we read the Bible back to front. And what that means is that once we see Jesus in the New Testament, we go back to the stories of the Old Testament in light of Jesus, and we find that he's always been there. His commentary says that Jesus is the king. He is the secret of heaven and earth, the secret of scripture, the clue that unlocks the confusion in our lives. And to know and love God, to know and love ourselves, to know and love other humans, we must first know this King, Jesus, the Messiah. And in the past few years, I have been soaking up this concept as I've been studying whole books of the Old Testament and being amazed to find so many treasures that point us to Jesus, so many shadows of the promise that will be fulfilled in the promised seed of redemption. And the last time I had the opportunity to be before you and read scripture was on Easter Sunday when Tony had asked me to read from John 1, which says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and all things were created through him. And later in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, Jesus speaks to one of his disciples and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
and to know me is to know my Father. So my prayer for our time here together this morning is that we leave knowing a little bit more about Jesus and that the Holy Spirit might awaken more hearts to have a fierce desire to know his word and go and tell of it. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we simply come before you this morning with open hands and open hearts, Lord. I pray that we would allow our hearts to receive the truth that comes from your Son, Jesus Christ, the truth that comes from your word alone, Lord, and that we wouldn't just be hearers of the word, Lord, but we would be doers of the word, that we would allow your word to break into our hearts, all of our hearts, and do the transformative work so that when we leave here, we're different, Father, so that people can look at us and say, I want to know Jesus the way that they know Jesus. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. For the past several months, I've been studying the books of First and Second Samuel, and God would have the message from today be centered out of 1 Samuel 12. But before we jump into that passage of scripture, I'm going to take us all the way back to Exodus. During that time, the Israelite people were very fruitful, and they began multiplying. And at the beginning of Exodus, it says that there's a new king that came into reign in Egypt. And this new pharaoh saw Israel as a threat to his own power and his nation. So he places all the Israelites into captivity, demanding that they serve as slaves to the Egyptians. The threat to his power led Pharaoh to order that every son born to a Hebrew family be thrown and drowned in the Nile River. Yet God, in his faithfulness, saves a Hebrew boy named Moses. That would be who he would call to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let his people go. We read that the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let my people go. So go to Pharaoh and tell him, the Lord, the God of Hebrews, has sent me to tell you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh refuses to listen. So God sent Moses in a series of plagues repeatedly to Pharaoh and the people of Egypt with the 10th and final plague being the death of every firstborn male in the land of Egypt. But God's protection of his people continued because he would tell Moses to tell those families to take and sacrifice an unblemished lamb and with a cluster of hyssop, brush the blood over their door frames so that when God's plague came through, he would pass over those houses and they would be safe. So with the loss of his firstborn son, Pharaoh finally has had enough. And he says, get out immediately and go and worship the Lord as you have said. And God's protection for his people continues because Pharaoh very quickly changes his mind and tries again to pursue after Moses and the Israelites. And in God's power, he separates the Red Sea and allows his people to safely cross through. And when Israel sees the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, 
they rightly feared and worshiped God. And in Exodus 15, we see their praise and worship in a song to Yahweh. And in their worship, they declare what they knew about God, that the Lord is my strength, my song, and my salvation. The Lord is a warrior. His right hand is glorious in power and shattered the enemy. And God, with your faithful love, you will lead your people that you have redeemed. You will guide them to your holy dwelling with your strength. And you, Lord, will reign as king forever and ever. See, from the very beginning, God created us with a heart to worship. And we were designed to worship him alone. However, our hearts are prone to wander and to forget the faithfulness of Yahweh and walk further and further into darkness. And we see that as exactly what the Israelites do just days after walking through the miracle of the Red Sea. And that would continue as we continue to read through the Old Testament leading up into the book of Judges that is often referred to as the dark ages of Hebrews' history. And the final verse of that book, it says that in those days there was no king in Israel, that everyone did what seemed right to him. And while I wish I had more time this morning to dive into the character of Samuel, who this book is named after, I don't. So my prayer would be that in the coming days and weeks, you would crack open your Bible and read the entire books of First and Second Samuel. But what you do need to know for today's passage is that here, God provided a way through the answer to the prayer from a barren woman's broken heart spilled out in worship to God. She said, God, please give me a son, and I promise I'll give him back to you. So God gives Hannah a son, and she names him Samuel. And she's obedient, and she takes that son, and she gives him back to the Lord as she had promised. See, Samuel was God's chosen prophet and the final judge of Israel. And in Samuel, we see a heart surrendered to God's leading, a willingness to listen and a faithfulness to obey, even when he shared God's instructions with people that didn't desire to hear it. Samuel was the instrument at that time that God would use to give his word to his people. And in Samuel 8, we find that Samuel's growing older. So the elders have gathered together, and they go to Samuel, and they say, Look, you are old, and your sons are not following in your ways. Therefore, appoint for us a king to judge us the same as all the other nations have. So Samuel considers this demand very wrong, so he goes to the Lord and prays, and God says, Samuel, they have not rejected you. They have rejected me as their king. They are doing the same thing to you that they have done to me since the days I brought them out of Egypt, abandoning me and worshiping other gods. And in Samuel's final public speech to Israel in chapter 12, he reminds the people that they have repeated the same wayward pattern of forgetting God. Samuel says, when you saw Nahash, 
king of the Ammonites coming against you, you also forgot the Lord and you requested another king. Samuel opened their eyes to the condition of their hearts and they cried out asking Samuel to go to God on their behalf, realizing that they had added to their own sins this evil request for another king. And here in our text today, Samuel reminds them and us that we first must recognize the sinful state of our hearts and then turn to the only one who can cleanse them. So 1 Samuel chapter 12, verses 20 to 24 says, Samuel replied to them, don't be afraid. Even though you have committed all this evil, don't turn away from following the Lord. Instead, worship the Lord with all of your heart. Don't turn away to follow worthless things that can't profit or rescue you. They are worthless. The Lord will not abandon his people because of his great name and because he has determined to make you his people. And as for me, I vow that I will not sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. I will teach you the good and the right way. Above all, fear the Lord and worship him faithfully with all of your heart. Consider the great things he has done for you. Israel's tendency was to harden their hearts, to turn to a different source for their security and their worship. And we, church, have that same tendency today. Dale Ralph Davis calls it a tendency to look for a new gimmick rather than cry out for a new heart. You see, a hard heart is a heart that refuses to listen to the words of God and God's ways. But a repentant heart is one who is humble, submissive in spirit, and trembles at God's word. And God just so happens to give us an example of both as we continue in the book of Samuel. So God first gives Israel the king they asked for, King Saul. His name Saul actually means the one who was asked for. He was a Benjamite, the son of Kish, who was an impressive young man who stood a head taller than everyone else. See, outwardly, he displayed all the things that Israel thought they needed in a king that would go to war for them. And Saul did have a humble beginning. We see that he conquers the Ammonites and he directs the people's praise to God, saying, the Lord has provided deliverance in Israel. However, rather quickly, we see that outward appearances only last a while. And over time, Saul's inner heart is revealed, and it's a hardened heart. In 1 Samuel, Samuel gave Saul specific instructions to go and to wait seven days until he would give him further guidance from the Lord. But in chapter 13, we see that Saul refused to listen. Saul had waited until the seventh day, but the, with the fear of his troops arising and the threat of his power, he decided, I can't wait for the Lord to provide. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. So Saul offers the burnt sacrifice, and this was a job reserved only for priests at the time. And just as he's finishing, Samuel arrives and says, Saul, what have you done? You have been foolish. 
You have not kept the command the Lord, the God, gave you. It was at this time that the Lord would have established your reign permanently over Israel. But now your reign will not endure. For I have found one after my own heart. And throughout the rest of 1 Samuel, we see that Saul continues in the path of doing things his own way. We watch as pride and jealousy grow to a level of extreme paranoia that it seems that his soul is never truly at rest. And he pretty much loses everything. He loses the instruction of Samuel. He loses the spirit of God. He even loses his son and his daughter. And that's because Saul was no longer focused on making much of the kingdom of God. He was only focused on making much of the kingdom of Saul. You see, the path of sin and darkness always leads us further from God than we ever thought we would go. And for Saul, it leads to a heart so hard that he chose to never repent. And still God remains faithful to his people. And he raises up another king for Israel, King David, the one called a man after his own heart. God sends Samuel to Jesse to Bethlehem, but he reminds him, do not look at appearance or stature. Humans do not see what the Lord sees, for humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. And here we find the second king of Israel, the one chosen by God, David. And there Samuel anoints him as the next king of Israel. And it says that the spirit of the Lord comes powerfully upon David. And in an even more humble beginning, we see a very young boy anointed to be the next king. But scripture tells us it's not until he's 30 years old that he actually steps in and begins that reign as king. Because during those first years of waiting, we find David back in the pasture caring for his father's sheep. And God would use those years to mold David's heart before placing him on the throne. And over time, Saul would hear of the shepherd boy who played a lyre, a harp-like instrument. And he would request his services because when God took the spirit of the living God away from Saul, he placed upon him an evil spirit. And the only thing that would calm that spirit would be when David played music. So at this point, Saul requests that David stay into his service and even become his armor bearer. And we see David's dependence on the Lord displays when no one else would go and fight the giant Philistine Goliath. But David, the young boy, untrained, goes and he proclaims, The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. David's success continued to grow in everything Saul sent him to do. And this was all good in Saul's eyes until he heard the women singing. Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his tens of thousands. And instantly Saul was furious at the threat of someone looking more powerful than him. 
And he allows this jealousy to brew up inside of him to the point that it leads him to a year after year pursuit to try and kill David. So Saul spends the rest of his years pursuing David. And David spends the rest of that time waiting, hiding in caves in the wilderness. But here we see the heart of a true worshiper continue to be revealed. Because David takes all those emotions of being pursued by the very person he was trying to help. And he begins writing what we now read in over half of the book of Psalms. You see, David's connection with God, his wrestling with the Spirit, and his proclaiming God's goodness allows him to walk in the obedience and trust that the Lord will fulfill his purpose for David. So we watch as God continues to protect David, both physical protection and what I believe to be a protection of his heart. And he does this first and foremost, always, through his word and his instruction. But God in his grace also places people of faith around us to help point us back to God when we've strayed or in times of trouble. And in David's life, we see this in Jonathan and in Michael and Abigail and Nathan. And in the fall, we're going to host a midweek service that dives deeper into the importance of the community and faith as we try to live out a life that God has put before us. So as we move into 2 Samuel, we see that David finally steps into his reign as king after the death of Saul. And the Lord continued to make David victorious everywhere he went. And he even offered him rest, finally, from all of his enemies. But even still, we see the humanness of this king because tucked deep within his heart was a seed of lust that led him down the path, the dark path, to adultery and murder. But even still, God in his grace provides a way for the promised seed of redemption by sending Nathan to David to confront him of his sin. And unlike Saul, David chooses to listen to the words that we read from Samuel that says, worship the Lord with all of your heart. And we see that David had a repentant heart as he penned Psalm 51. And as we read pieces of that psalm, we see that David was humble when he says, Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love. According to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. Because against you and you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. And as we continue to read, we see David's cry for a submiss- to be and have a submissiveness of spirit. When he says, God, create within me a clean heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. And he says, God, you will not despise a broken and humbled heart. Finally, we see him tremble at God's word. He says, 
Lord, purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Restore the joy of salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Then I will teach your ways to the rebellious and sinners will return to you. In Chuck Smith's commentary, he says, the title, a man after God's own heart, was not given to David because he was sinless, but because his heart was always open towards God. This is why it's so important that we read our Bibles with the entirety of Scripture in mind, with God's redemptive story as our main view. Because anytime we place our allegiance or our worship on anything other than God, we're going to end up disappointed. Because you see, David is not the point of the story. Anything good that came from David, that comes from us, is because God's hand is placed upon us. But David points to the one king who reigns forever, the king of kings. In 2 Samuel 7, God would say to David, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom because he is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever for I will be his father and he will be my son. Jesus is the promised Messiah the seed of David, the son of man. And then in the most humble of all beginnings, we see Jesus, fully God, come to earth to be fully man, to go to the cross, to be the ultimate sacrificed, unblemished lamb who was no sin, to take on all of our sin and give up the full cost for every time we choose to turn away from our God. Jesus is the king. He is the secret of heaven and earth, the secret of scripture, the clue that unlocks the confusion on our lives. You see, Jesus is the exodus from slavery to freedom. Jesus is the deliverance of the waters of the Red Sea, and Jesus is the better judge, prophet, priest, and king, because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to the Father is through him. And Jesus is our only way to a repentant heart, a heart totally surrendered to God alone. We saw, as a brother gave that witness to us in his proclamation before us of his faith for God and baptism this morning. But a repentant heart doesn't only come in that moment of salvation. It has to continue to come because we will continue to wander away from the very God that saved us. Our hearts are our greatest treasure. And God is the one that placed them within each one of us and gave us the breath of life. And that in and of itself should be enough for us to give all of our lives and our worship back to our Heavenly Father. In church, I believe that we can live in a time that's different from that time of Judges. 
I believe that we can live different because the Holy Spirit is within us. But it's an individual choice, a daily choice, a daily surrender of our will in order to follow God's. It's a choice to be so caught up in the magnificence of Christ that nothing else matters. Found within each of the Gospels, we read of an account of a woman who, when she entered the presence of Jesus, she took an alabaster jar full of expensive perfume and in an extravagant display of her worship and her love to Jesus, she breaks it open and pours it at his feet, not caring at all what others might think. She locks her heart and her eyes on Jesus, the King of Kings, and she breaks open her greatest treasure. In just a minute, the praise band is going to come back up, and I've asked them to sing a song called Alabaster Heart. And it's a song that probably a lot of you aren't familiar with, but I pray that you allow the words to just pour over your heart, specifically on any piece of your heart that you may have allowed to harden. Even pray that God would open your eyes to any piece of your heart that you're holding back from him. Whether it be a secret sin, whether it be unforgiveness, maybe pride, or even jealousy, anything that would separate you from God and the path of life he has for you. I pray that each one of us are willing to look at this cross and even come up to the cross if the Spirit would guide you and break open our greatest treasure, our hearts before him, bringing to him any peace that we've held off from giving to him. Because at the cross, Jesus gave all he was for all that we are not. So church, how could we not bring a lifetime worth of worship and lay our hearts before him?